This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Good morning. Malcolm White here with Carol Puckett. The rain is coming down here at the capital city. The stock market is up. And hurricane season has started early. In fact, the first storm, Arthur, is just off the coast of North Carolina, where our guest today, Marcy Ferris, is from. Good morning, Carol. How are you? Good morning, Mal. I'm so happy to be here, and I'm really thrilled about Marcy Ferris being on the show. That's something you and I have been wanting for a long time. So, hey, it's a good day. It's a beautiful thing. And uh, we'll talk to her about her work and uh, her writing and uh, all her teaching and all the work she does in North Carolina. Uh, but before that, you know, what was your weekend like? What have you been cooking and what's going on in Carol World? Well, um, Carol World was pretty good this weekend. I think the highlight of it was going over to Lee Bailey's farm salad days on Saturday morning and picking up a box of food and vegetables. It was really cool. Uh, we ordered it online from saladdaysproduce.com and paid online and then you had to go, there was a window of time, I think 8 to 12. And when we got there, I just thought we were going to drive up. There were 20 cars or more in front of us, even parked along the side of the highway to pick up their boxes. And it was super, super organized. You had, there was a, you know, a guy on a walkie-talkie with a computer printout. And he, you know, radioed it to the tent. And you push your, your uh, trunk button or put it in the back seat. And they put it in for you. So it was a, a you know, great way to get some fresh fruits and vegetables. And uh, I know salad days, I know Two Dog Farms is doing it. And I'm going to really research and find out who who else is doing the CSA community sustained agriculture boxes and yeah. let our listeners know. Yeah, I've read where uh, a lot of the uh, food suppliers who um, supplied restaurants are now sort of <clears throat> turning to these boxes and to uh, the experience you just described uh, to su- sustain themselves uh, during this period. <clears throat> And so tell me what you cooked or what you did. You know, uh, I did a lot of gardening this weekend. Um, and, and I'll tell you, we've been preparing uh, to reopen Howlin' Mouse this morning, like many, many, many restaurants all across uh, the nation, either opened up over the weekend or preparing to open this week or next. It's a really, really unusual and odd time to be in the restaurant business and, and to be trying to reopen a business that's been open in our case for 35 years and trying to implement all of the strategies and the precautions and the, uh, the guidelines that have been put forth from the federal government, the state government, the city government, the health department. Uh, it's kind of maddening quite frankly, but, but I know this is just part of what we have to do, you know, in order to, to reopen and, and to get things going again. So we'll be doing that this morning at lunch. Uh, and, and also, over the weekend, I noticed a lot of the local restaurants in Jackson uh, started reopening. Some looked very busy. Some looked like uh, it was kind of slow. So we'll see. Uh, you know, we're, we're, we're making the evolution from uh, curbside pickup to, to dine in, and, it's, and it's, uh, it's a different world out there, Carol. It sure <clears throat> is. Uh, I actually did curbside pickup last night. I uh, came into town to do the radio show this morning, and 
called in an order to Bravo, and, you know, they had a place to pull up. They delivered the food to the car, and I can tell you that after, what, 40, 50, 60-something days of cooking, it was really great, you know, to have a, a local restaurant familiar meal. Yeah, and speaking of uh, cooking and, and the familiar, our, our mutual friend Elaine Trigiani, who lives in Italy, has been doing online cooking classes through Zoom. And uh, I know you worked with her, uh, I believe, through Viking and some other experiences. But yeah, Elaine sure grew up in, in Jackson and Mississippi, but now lives in Italy and is doing some classes. So stay tuned um, for that. Look for Elaine Trigiani. Uh, I think it's called Culinary travels or something like that Uh, i just happened to dial in uh, a week or so ago and saw her class yeah well we'll be posting it on our cooking and coping facebook page which uh is very very active and i should have said i spent a lot of time this weekend on that interacting with all the people all over the country who were doing fun foods from peanut butter sandwiches to you know some really pretty swell stuff um so watch Cooking and Coping, and we'll publish that information about Elaine. And preparing for Marcy to join us in the next segment, I know you and Marcy spoke uh, on the phone. So what are some of the things that, uh, that y'all talked about and some things that our uh, listeners can anticipate hearing from her and also hoping that uh, they will join the conversation as well? Well, one thing we spent a lot of time talking about uh, was the role of food banks in the coronavirus era and how food banks are having to pivot and do different things. There was a great article we talked about in the New York Times this week that talked about some food banks are having to actually go to cooking. And that's a new model because they are getting pallet loads of donations. They are, you know, inundated with this food and, you know, produce has a short life. So what do you do with 500 pounds of squash? And they're coming up with creative ways to cook that, you know, put protein in it and um, and get out there, you know, get it out to their clients and people in need. And I was, I was going to tell you, too, I checked in this morning before the show with Martha Allen down at Extra Table in Hattiesburg. And yet they do such a fantastic job and have food pantries all over the state. And so I was just asking her how it was going, and she was running out the door to join a group. They were going to package up 2,000 pounds of rice into individual uh, individual bags, and this was donated by Mike Wagner up in Sumner. You know, he's the guy that has Two Brooks Farm. Right. It just he has like 10 amazing rices, and you know, you can get them in some of the grocery stores now and farmer's markets. But, you know, 2,000 pounds of rice, that's a lot of rice. That's an awful lot of rice. Is that Delta rice? It is Delta rice from around Sumna. Sumna, Sumna Mississippi. Yeah, we need to have him on the show. We ought to, for sure. Hey, did you do any fishing this weekend or was it too rainy? Well, it was too rainy for me. You know, John, John went out some, but we ate fish. I, made, okay, I thought I saw that. Yeah, I made I made trout uh, trout amandine with some speckled trout on Friday night, and you know that was kind of the highlight of my cooking. How about yours? 
You know, we just piddled around. Uh, we didn't have any monumental meals. My granddaughter, Wren, was over uh, Saturday night, and uh, we had mac and cheese uh, to celebrate her. Uh, but, uh, you know, we've been keeping it kind of uh, low profile. Uh, we're not doing uh, – Kara's getting back to work. You know, she's trying to end the school year at New Summit. Uh, you know, we're trying to get the money out at the Arts Commission. We're trying to get Howl Mouths reopened. The grandkids are around. So, you know, we're... Yeah, we're you're just, kind of busy. It was kind of quiet weekend in the kitchen except just, uh, you know, to eat and, and to keep motoring on. Well, you know, what I forgot to mention was that we actually dug into the corned beef. You remember the fish oh, yeah. giant corned beef? The corned well, beef is big as the state of Alabama. It is the biggest the state of Alabama, but we had corned beef and cabbage on Friday oh. night, and John was a really happy guy. I bet he was. All right, well, we're going to take a break. Speaking of happiness, and when we come back, uh, we're going to be joined by our special guest, Dr. Marcy Ferris. Um, and she's going to talk a lot about her experience with the Southern Jewish food traditions, uh, talk about her book. She is now a professor emeritus at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. And when I got it, when I was speaking to her on Facebook a week or so ago, she was busy cooking in her North Carolina kitchen as she is getting ready for a new upcoming book. So stay tuned for that. On Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit, you get information about foods you should eat to stay in good health and tips on how to stay active. I'm Dr. Josie Bidwell, host of Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit and Associate Professor of Preventive Medicine at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Listen to the show every Monday at 11 or subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy with your preferred podcasting app. You're listening to Deep South Dining here on MPB Think Radio. I'm Malcolm White here with Carol Puckett. This is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. And now we will uh, join forces to welcome our guest. I would like to say uh, about Marcy Ferris uh, that the great food, Southern food writer John Edgerton once said, a place at the table is like a ringside seat at the historical and ongoing life in a region. And we think Marcy Ferris has spoken clearly about uh, the American South. So if you would, Carol, please recognize our guest today. Good morning, Marcy. Good morning, Carol. Good morning, Malcolm. And you know, that is my favorite quote from John Edgerton. <laughs> Well, you know, we're just thinking a lot, uh, but Marcy, we're so happy to to have you, and Malcolm and I have wanted to have you for quite some time, and let me just tell the listeners a little bit about you. Um, we claim you as a Mississippian, but you're actually a native of Flightful, Arkansas, and spent, I guess, your first gig in Mississippi was with the Museum of Southern Culture, is that right? The Museum of yeah, Southern the, Jewish Experience. Yeah, which is now the Institute for the Jewish South, yes. Is that in Utica or Jackson? It's in Jackson. Okay. And you've served as president of the Southern Foodways Alliance in Oxford, um, spent a great deal of time in Washington, 
Uh, in, in fact, that's where you got your PhD. Is that right? I did. Um, Bill, what, my husband Bill is a folklorist, and he was at the National Endowment for the Humanities as head of that for about five years, and that's when I decided I needed to dive back into my education, and so I, I got a, a, a doctorate in American Studies at George Washington University. Okay, so that took you to North Carolina, and uh, tell us about your experience there. Oh, North Carolina, you know, it's it's an amazing state. It's a long state, you know, it's a long, skinny state, so there's a lot of different regions of, of the state, and it's been really exciting for me to explore um, its foodways in particular, and, and, you know, and its southern cultures. My, one of my main areas of research is really studying the American South you know, through the lens of food and through the Jewish South, and so North Carolina has been a really exciting place to do that. And when Bill and I came here, um, Bill was going to be teaching in the history uh, department as a folklorist, and then I joined the American Studies Department at the University of North Carolina and taught there for 20-plus years and I'm still really involved as an educator. And uh, now I can mention I'm, I'm working on a, a new book project that really came out of the classes I taught. And we can talk about that a little bit more, but... Yeah, North Carolina, it's a, it's a big place. There's a lot of strong connections. I know for you too, Carol, there's a lot of Mississippians who have long come over to, to come over to North Carolina for, uh, you know, for, for time and, and vacation and, and work. And uh, there's a, a strong relationship between Mississippi and North Carolina. And, yeah, we're so glad that you and Bill, you know, keep a direct pipeline to Mississippi and come back here often. And his his hometown is he from Bovina or outside of Bovina? He's he's from outside of Vicksburg. Yeah. Okay. And, uh, lived, grew up on a farm there, and we have a lot of family and friends who we're in really close contact with in Vicksburg and out in the country around the farm. And it's been hard to to be away uh, during, especially now uh, during kind of these lockdown months. So, Marcy, you grew up in Arkansas in a Jewish uh, household. Talk to us a little bit about how you reckoned with ham hocks for your greens and pork in general. <laughs> well, my grandmother, it's, it's kind of ironic. My little Russian Jewish grandmother, uh, Luba Cohen, Luba Tudor Cohen, who grew up in Odessa, and, you know, it's kind of the classic Jewish, American Jewish immigrant story of how she arrives with her family and, you know, they have to get out of uh, out of Odessa and very difficult circumstances uh, after the turn of the 20th century and make their way to New York. And then eventually, it's a long story, she marries my grandfather, Jimmy, and finds her, her who's an in, a civil engineer. And that's how he ends up in the Arkansas Delta, very similar to the Mississippi, Mississippi Delta. So there we grew up, you know, that's where I grew up in northeastern Arkansas. My dad was a civil engineer, too. And so we were kind of in in many different worlds. You know, we existed in a in a Jewish community, but also in a non-Jewish, largely Christian community, white and black community, Latinx community too. Lots of lots of Mexican field labor and workers. And it was a really fascinating place. And then I had Jewish family. As my my mom grew up in Connecticut, kind of in a much more traditional uh, Jew, American Jewish experience. 
you know, Arkansas Jewish experience is traditional too, but just different. <laughs> she, she, she brought those kind of more, you know, kind of, she grew up in a conservative Jewish home or Orthodox Jewish home in practice. And so we didn't really have so much ham hock right in our house, but we certainly ate, and don't tell anybody, y'all keep this quiet <laughs> among, among your listeners. We did go to the Dixie Pig, which is the famed barbecue <laughs> restaurant in, uh, in Blyville, and it's still there, and hopefully it's still thriving, and I know it is. And, uh, but, so we would, we would secretly go to the Dixie Pig, you know, but nobody cared. And, um, but my <laughs> grandmother, I was saying, Luba was a good cook, Russian Jewish cook, had a Russian accent all her life and she did flavor her pole beans with a little bit of a little bit of the pig. Oh. And I'm sure <laughs> Marsh Mar- Mar- sure, oh something how, I loved how, how in how your else? book Matzo Ball Gumbo and then I actually heard you give one of the best food waste lectures food waste lectures I've ever heard. And you did something on how the Jews of Memphis made peace with pork. Oh oh Yes, yes, yes. I, re- I remember that. That was my, my that was during the barbecue symposium, Carol, the first barbecue symposium at the Southern Foodways Alliance. Yeah, it and I, was, I, I had to. But I had, you hit it out of the ballpark. That it was just fantastic. But, but can you further talk a little bit about pork and the Jews of Memphis and all the barbecue places? Well, you know, it's really interesting. It's do y'all know is Corky still running strong in Memphis? As far as I know, Corky's Corky, is doing great. Yeah, terrific barbecue place. Um, owned and operated by a Jewish family who really important members of the Reformed Jewish community there. And, you know, so there's a lot of, 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 of Jewish engagement in barbecue culture, but, you know, it's also... Uh, but Memphis is also the location of one of the most important Orthodox, you know, most traditional branch of, of Judaism. Um, it, uh, Orthodox congregations there, and they certainly don't uh, uh, engage in eating anything that's not kosher. You know, so people are able to live in these worlds, but also respect, uh, but politely not engage in worlds. Of, of, of trafe or, or non-kosher, you know, food waste, because that's important for a lot of, of, of Jewish people, of course. But there is a really important, one of the uh, conservative Orthodox, one of the Orthodox congregations for years has had a barbecue competition during May <laughs> because of, you know, the, you know, the big, you know, big, big barbecue competition that happens in May along the river in Memphis. And they just, it's, there's no pig involved. And so wow. that's how they make sense of that, right? And so they just barbecue the the, the hell out of non pork things, and it's pretty <laughs> well, Marcy. Everybody eats, and a lot of people cook. But how did you focus on and and come to food as a lens to look at history and places and story, especially in the American South? Well, you know, I I think it has everything to do with what we were just talking about, you know, kind of the, the cultural worlds that I grew up in, you know, we were both kind of insider-outsider people because of our Jewishness and because of my mother's Connecticutness also. But I, 
I saw that difference in our lives often in, in how we ate and in the fact that we had Jewish family elsewhere in America and in the Northeast. And I just paid it, you know, I was one of those people that paid attention to food as a way of understanding place. And I didn't really understand what that was when I was a little kid, but it came more, it made more sense and it spoke a little more loudly to me as I moved into uh, my profession, which was working in the field of public history and doing uh, education work within museums. And food was always a lens for me onto the American experience. I thought people told us, told me who they were by how they ate. And there's no region, I think, that does that better than the American South. And, you know, often the American South is presented as such a flattened kind of almost cartoonish world of, of, uh, of stereotypes. But we know, and y'all specifically talk about that on, on, on this program, that it's much more diverse and complex and nuanced of all these worlds of, of black and white and immigrant voices and, uh, you know, uh, uh, from all over the world that have really shaped our food ways and made them as delicious and as poignant and as complicated as, as they are. So that, that Southern food uh, and the study of the American South really became my way of trying to understand our, our region. Well, I know that uh, your book, Matzo Ball Gumbo, uh, was, was quite a success, and you, you followed that up with the Edible South, the power of food and the making of an American region. I, I th- but now you're working on a new book, I think, more focused on North Carolina, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, it's, uh, it's called Edible North Carolina, and I've, for years at, at, at Carolina, at the University of North Carolina, I've been teaching food studies classes, and of course they focused a lot on the American South, and then they started to focus more on our state, because I wanted my students who are largely North Carolinians and just amazing people who only had to kind of look back maybe not even one generation to find agriculture, agricultural history and farm and farming in their own families. I wanted them to be able to speak of that and to speak of and understand their own food landscapes. So we started turning more to our region, and I sent students out across the state to do a lot of oral histories. We brought in a lot of amazing farmers and chefs and journalists and the Secretary of Agriculture for the state and all kinds of folks came into our classroom to speak to us. And the last piece of this project that we were developing was to create a book project out of that with the University of North Carolina Press. And so that's what I'm working on. It's called Edible North Carolina, and it's a collection of 20 essays by really our by fabulous voices of people across the state. Again, those same folks, many of the same folks that visited my class, journalists, chefs, farmers, uh, extension agents, people uh, involved in sustainable ag, and you know all kinds of, of voices across the state. Um, Marcy, I, I know that two of our recent guests, I believe, have essays in your book: uh, Vivian Howard and right. April McGregor. Yeah, you got it. Um, 
Vivian is writing our forward for us. And I, I think Vivian, I just adore Vivian. I think she is the state treasurer and she, in the, in the first series that, that she did a chef's life, she really looked at, at our region and beginning with Eastern North Carolina, which is her home, um, one ingredient at a time. And now she's broadened that out to take us further across the South and somewhere South. And I knew that Vivian was the one to really kind of bring together lots of these voices and what is happening in our state. Because the book is really a look at the contemporary food landscape of the state. It's not so much a history, but I'm trying to really get a sense of what's happening in regional food landscapes across the South and using North Carolina as a place to start that conversation. Yeah, so... Vivian's writing a forward, and April, April McGregor, who is a, a Mississippian, and she's been on with y'all, I know. Um, she's writing an essay on the food entrepreneurs of the Piedmont, which is right the part of the state that I live in, in the middle of the state, Chapel Hill and Orange County and Durham and Carborough. It's a largely old, old-school agricultural region. All right, it's time for a break, and when we come back, we will continue our conversation with Carol, myself, and Dr. Marcy Cohen-Ferris of the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. She's a writer, a professor, a teacher, uh, a a foodie, uh, and a great friend of Mississippi. Uh, Her her husband, the great Bill Ferris, is uh, quite a Mississippi icon, and we love and adore and respect Marcy and Bill and all they continue to do for the American South and especially Mississippi. We'll talk about uh, Marcy's Jewish culinary journey in the South. We'll talk about the Mississippi Delta, and we may touch on COVID-19 and the effects it's had on our food supply. So stay tuned. Hello, I'm Dr. Nancy Lotridge-Anderson, president of New Perspectives, a fee-only financial advising firm and co-host of Money Talks. For over 10 years, Money Talks has been answering your personal financial questions and sharing knowledge about money management. Money Talks can be heard Tuesdays at 9 a.m. on MPB Think Radio. Podcasts can be found on our website, money.mpbonline.org, or on your smart device's podcasting platform. You are tuned to MPB Think Radio. This is Deep South Dining, the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. I'm Malcolm White here with Carol Puckett, and our very special guest today from North Carolina is Dr. Marcy Cohen-Ferris. And Marcy, I'm going to ask you to start this segment uh, a little bit about your matzo ball recipe. I've been doing a little research lately, and do you put nutmeg in your matzo ball? You know, I don't, but that's an, that's an interesting little uh, detail because the folks, some folks I interviewed in New Orleans do. Where, where did you see it? Well, I saw some recipes online. I was just sort of searching matzo balls and trying to uh, see what, all, what major components and ingredients were in there. And the other one that, that kind of puzzled me was the dill sprig. I guess it's used as a garnish. Yeah, could be. I, I, I want to know why Malcolm White is doing research on matzo balls. 
<laughs> well, well, I'll I, tell you. <laughs> I want y'all to tell our listeners about matzo balls so uh, so they'll know what, what the heck you're talking about. Yeah, so Marcy, you tell us what a matzo ball is, and then I'll tell you why I'm interested in it. Okay, well, it's interesting because, you know, Vivian Howard and in the, in their, their wonderful new show, Somewhere South, they just did a wonderful episode on dumplings. So it's a dumpling, and they came to Mississippi for, for that episode and traveled all over the state and looked at the... Uh, Delta Chinese community, Asian community. They looked at the Jewish community in, in, in Mississippi and in Jackson. Made, made matzo balls with, uh, Petra Kay and Susan Hart and Allie Parshall. And, um, but it's a dumpling and it's made out of matzo meal. And matzo meal is, is, uh, is a baked cracker of flour and water that you have to bake for less than 18 minutes so that it doesn't rise because it represents the historic matzah that the Jews carried with them on their journey, you know, and they had to leave fast and, you know, and they didn't have time for the bread to rise. And so you, so you eat it symbolically during the week of Passover to commemorate that, that journey, and you don't eat anything leavened. So you can take, you can take matzah and make it into matzah meal, like a, a meal, like, like a grain is a meal, meal, meal. And uh, and then ba- and then make um, things uh, you know, dishes with it. Matzo balls are one of the best things. Huh? And oh, the matzo good. ball goes in a soup. A chicken ball. Yes. So a you chicken ball. Right. Exactly. You can eat them as a side dish, but largely it's an it was a dish that um, was traditional from uh central europe you know fr- from european jews experience in uh central europe and they would often have you know uh, a, a chicken or duck on a you know at the end of the week if if they had the means you know for a special uh shabbos evening meal and so you would make a dumpling to go in your broth that the that you you know you put your your hen your your fat hen in and uh, you just make the matzo ball with a little oil, um, an egg, and the matzo meal, and a little salt and pepper, and form it into a ball, and then drop that into your boiling broth, and it pops up, bubbles up in about 20 minutes if you leave it alone with the top on the box. <laughs> well, I really loved Vivian Howard's episode because... You know, the most familiar I, I am with matzo balls is from your book. But it was wonderful seeing them, you know, make them and hearing about the history. But I love the idea of schmaltz. And can you tell tell us about the schmaltz of the matzo balls? Yeah. Yeah. So schmaltz is a wonderful thing. It's like, you know, this just kind of treasured ingredients. It's chicken fat, right? It's ch- rendered chicken fat so it's just so valued by you know historically by jewish uh women (laughs) around the world really right because it's just just this kind of golden fabulous goopy fat that um is pretty pure you know to to use uh if 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 you're not vegan or vegetarian, but it, it's delicious in matzo balls. It makes a very light dumpling to you. If you, if you have schmaltz, you use that instead of, instead of like a canola oil or, you know, a vegetable oil, you would definitely use schmaltz. 
Not a lot well, of people. That's the reason for sitting fat around. Hands, really fat hands. Yes. Yeah. And and the best is when you make chicken soup. And I think Petra talked about this. You have to have, you know, and she said, you have to have a fat hand. You start with a fat hand, you know, in the alley, you, you know. A young woman was like, how do you get a fat hen? You know, what's that look like? <laughs> but you make your, you know, even when you make, when I make chicken soup, I make it, my mother says, you have to make it the day before at least because you want to let it sit. And then you, then you, you scoop off that fat, you know, that, that chicken fat the next day. And it makes your soup more clear and lovely and delicious. And then you save that fat to cook with. Well, you know, Marcy, uh, when I grew up in Boonville, I went to high school in Boonville. My closest friends were the Rubenstein brothers, and I got to know them and their family a little bit and the Fellmans. They were merchants, but they came uh, to Mississippi to Marks uh, uh, as merchants, and and then from there they ended up uh, in Boonville. But in your book, Matzo Ball Gumbo, you talk a lot about how the Jews came to the American South. I know that's a long story, but if you could just sort of give us a little snippet of that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And before we, we leave Schmaltz, I just remembered, too, you know, we were talking about um, Schmaltz and, you know, that rendered, um, you, can, you can fry, you know, the rendered chicken fat, you know, in those little the skin. And you get, yeah. you know, cr- cracklings. <laughs> so that's another kind of connection between Southern and Jewish cuisine, but they're called gribbinas. So, but anyway, yeah, long, long, interesting story. But Jews arrive in the American South really at the, uh, in kind of the very late 16th century. Uh, there is a Jew, a, mineral, a Jewish mineralogist who's known to come on uh, one of the early European exploratory, you know, expeditions uh, that came to the Outer Banks in North Carolina in the 1580s. And then, but the first kind of small group of, of Jewish settlers arrived in Savannah in 1733. So that's at a time when Jewish congregations or groups of Jews are part of those European expeditions of the kind of that Atlantic world exploration that's having happening in the 17th and 18th century as we that connection between Europe and between North America and so co- small groups of of Jews Jewish settlers are 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 beginning to organize community um, but they're they're a minority they're, they were in uh, New Amsterdam which became New York of course and in Richmond Virginia and Savannah and Charleston and Newport, Rhode Island. So those are the, really the earliest. But the fact that in 1733, there's a Jewish community already established in Savannah, it makes the American South one of the earliest and most historic places for Jewish settlement. And then Jewish uh, people stay largely on the coast for, for many, 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 many years. They follow kind of the settlement patterns exactly of of the American South, and then as the cotton economy begins to open up and move westward to Mississippi, and you know to those, and and we we see the the plantation culture moving and opening up in Mississippi. Jews moved also. Jewish merchants, Jewish peddlers, their families moved across the South, always as kind of small 
mercantile folks involved in craft and trade, and then opening up and settling in small towns and cities across the American South. And that's that's how they ended up in the in Mississippi in the Delta. A little bit later, coming to Mississippi, kind of at the time that 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 railroads and trains open up the history of of the Mississippi Delta and of and of the state. Jews Jewish folks come along right with that with that economic opportunity. Wow. Marcy, what were the big Jewish settlements in the Mississippi Delta? So, Carol, Greenwood, Greenville, Cleveland, Indianola. But like Malcolm said, there were small numbers, one, two Jewish families in Ruleville, Marks, you know, every every little crossroads, you know, and and, and that's one thing we, we really saw when we looked at and, and, and watch the history and observe the history of the Asian Mississippian community in the Delta, wherever those Chinese merchants were, they often looked to see where, had, how the, the Jewish merchants were there. Did they do well? Were they accepted? Did they experience any racism or racial violence? If not, they knew that was a good place to be too. So there, those, all those little towns um, around throughout the Delta usually had at least one Jewish family. Wow. All right. It's time for uh, a break here. But when we come back, we will continue to uh, talk to Dr. Marcy Cohen-Ferris. We've certainly enjoyed our conversation about her writing and her work uh, around the Jewish culinary journey through the American South. When we return, we'll talk a little bit about the COVID-19 coronavirus and how it is impacting and changing our approach to eating uh, in and out of our kitchen. So stay tuned. And don't forget to connect with us online. Join our Facebook group, Cooking and Coping, gathering around the virtual dinner table by searching Cooking and Coping on Facebook. We'll be right back with Carol, myself, and Marcy Ferris. Walker, the lady auto mechanic, host of AutoCorrect. If you're enjoying this podcast, try my podcast, AutoCorrect. We help steer you in the right direction with your car problems. Find me on any podcast platform or at autocorrect.mpbonline.org. You're listening to Deep South Dining right here on MPB Think Radio. Malcolm White, Carol Puckett, and today our very special, special guest, Dr. Marcy Ferris. She is the Professor Emeritus, the Department of American Studies at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. We have just enjoyed having you here so much, Marcy, and we appreciate you taking the time uh, to spend an hour with us here on Deep South Dining. I'm just so Marcy, excited to talk to We had a great time this weekend talking about the changes that might happen as a, re- as a result of COVID-19. And I wanted to just talk to you a little bit about what you think is going to happen, what is going to change about our food culture, uh, 
how people are going to eat. Yeah. Oh, Carol, it's such a it's such a pivotal time. You know, I I feel like with all the pain that we experience as global citizens that I hope this is also a time that maybe this painful time takes us to kind of a, a to a place of more clarity and of of, of kind of a, a reopening or a, a rebeginning where we maybe have a chance to repair and rebuild and reimagine and uh, what we see broken within our so many aspects of, of the world that we're uh, witnessing right now personally and around the around the world and that I think really impacts our tables. We've really seen that all so personally as we've been forced to isolate at home, to quarantine, and to observe and participate in trying to bring food to our tables. Um, it's been very yeah, challenging. One thing that's really broken is our food supply chain. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think the COVID-19 is not the reason for it, but it has brought, it has opened our eyes to a very broken and problematic system. So we're talking about, you know, and this is complex. A lot of people are writing about it right now. But we're really talking about the American, uh, the standard American diet and kind of the industrial food supply in our country. Both of those are experiencing a lot of problems right now. And I'd recommend to the, there's a really terrific interview online with Dan Barber, who's one of our great American chefs and intellectuals, intellects who's, who's speaking about this right now. And he's got a, a great, uh, interview talking about what's happening with the local with the with what's broken in in our American food system today. So I just recommend that that you turn to that. But to me, what this makes me what many people are writing about is yeah, we're, we've seen these industrial food supply chains break down, um, and folks are witnessing that. We're also seeing we're seeing two things happening: uh, great hunger. Lots of people needing food relief, lots of even middle-class Americans, this is crossing class lines, a lot of people out of work. So we're seeing people, middle-class people in lines of cars, hundreds of cars waiting for food, for food boxes. But we're also seeing this great abundance of, it's springtime, of, of farms across America, big farms, little farms, small-scale farms producing all the food. But how do they get it? What is the supply chain? It is broken, it, you know, it, and lots of things are happening. But what we're seeing is that the small-scale farms and the local food systems that you all know in Mississippi, we know certainly here in, in North Carolina, that's what I'm writing about, those are working. And that's an exciting moment. We, we've known they've worked for a long time, and there's been a lot of interest in the farm-to-table movement and in rebuilding and bolstering our local food economies, but there's never been a more important time than the COVID moment to help us appreciate and treasure and do everything we can to hold on to and rebuild our local food economies. The reason they work so well is because they're small enough and quick enough and nimble enough to respond to change. You know, it's difficult to move a giant, you know, uh, uh, 
you know, ship out in the ocean, right? It takes a while to turn that, that damn thing, right? But, you know, if you got a little boat, you, you make that turn on a dime. And that's what we're seeing happening here in North Carolina. Chefs and restaurants, small farmers at the farmer's market, food hubs, uh, food relief programs, being able to quickly respond to change uh, in this crisis and get food to people that need it. Marcy, one of the things I love that we talked about uh, on, on Saturday was farmers markets and how farmers markets are going to, to change from entertainment and being the province of foodies to to being a more sustainable source uh, of food in the local areas. So how do you see that happening that that there will be more equality of distribution in the farmers markets? Well, what I hope we see is that in the future, farmers' markets are critical parts of our local food economies, of our regional food landscapes. But they're only one piece of it, right? We have to have there is kind of regional food or economy and wealth that's created by other entrepreneurs. And uh, this is what Dan Barber speaks about so beautifully. Other other folks that are involved in growing wheat and distilling. Uh, liquor, in having bakeries, in being cheesemongers, in making preserves, in having small grocery stores that are locally owned. You have to have all those pieces so that the farmer's market is not the only place because it's not sustainable to serve everybody, you know, uh, and you want to have lots of different places where the consumer can walk into and participate in a local food economy that they can afford, if that makes sense. Marcy, North Carolina is doing some really creative things with food banks. And can you speak to a couple of those, or especially the one that Asheville is doing with our friend John Fleer? Oh, yeah. So there's a group in Asheville called We Give a Share. You can find it online. You can buy a share. A little, if you, look, you can give just a little bit of money, and it goes to supporting a local farm that is then giving its produce to a local community kitchen who's preparing meals and getting those prepared meals out to community members in need. And Chef John Fleer and Chef Mark Rosenstein and John's Farmers and Aaron and Ann Greer from Gaining Ground Farm, they're all gathered together. Oh, Chef Hanan Shabazz, who's a great African-American uh, woman chef in Asheville, are all working together. And John John had said when the COVID was starting to happen all around us, COVID-19 was, was, was happening, he said, go out and do something good in the world. And this has been their response to, to the need. And, uh, again, this is an example of that kind of response, turn on a dime and feed the community. And it'll be a model that can really work across the country. Sure. Marcy, we, uh, again, we greatly appreciate your time and your, your expertise and your willingness to come on and share with us. Good luck on the new book uh, and all of your endeavors there in North Carolina. And be careful because Hurricane Author is out there banging on your door. <laughs> I know. Thank you so much, Malcolm. And yeah, bye, Marcy. Y'all stay safe, yeah. too. Tell Bill we said hello, and we'll look to see you very soon. 
All right. As I said before, Deep South Dining is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting's Think Radio. It is funded by generous contributions from listeners like you. Our show was produced by Java Chapman. Thanks from Carol Puckett and myself for today's great guest, Dr. Marcy Cohen-Ferris from North Carolina. I'm Malcolm White, and we hope that you will stay tuned for Now You're Talking with Marshall Ramsey and Southern Remedy at 11, and join us next Monday at 9 o'clock in the morning for Deep South Dining right here on MPB Think Radio.